Amen. Praise the Lord. We do have an anchor that will never move. I invite you to go ahead and be seated and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Hopefully by this point in time, you've also made bookmarks for yourselves and marked off Ephesians 2 and Luke 11, which we'll be looking at in short order. I'd invite you at this time as well, go ahead and turn off this device here. This is uh, just a distraction. We'll just focus in on the paper, the leather-bound and paper version of our Bibles this morning so that we don't have to worry about what the world might interrupt us with, what notifications or alerts we might get. And again, I just invite you to go with me. Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be at, and then as well, we're going to be looking at Ephesians and Luke this morning. They say that uh, if you know a man who's really biblical, really theologically minded, you can take his Bible and, and you can just sort of hold it like this, and it'll naturally flop open to Romans chapter 5, <laughs> um, and specifically verses 12 to the end of the chapter, just chapter 6, basically, because this is really a crucial text in understanding all that is wrong in the world around us. And uh, just this morning, Pastor Al gives me uh, one of T.T. Uh, T. Shields' old sermons with this little note on it saying, you know, let's... Uh, he, he was admiring Pastor Shields' uh, ability to make things simple, which I also admire as well. And uh, at the same time, I, I don't know how he did it because uh, I read this text here and I'm like, whew, there's some, some stuff in this text that we're going to have to wrestle with and sort through. Uh, and the main point, really, of, of what Paul is saying is, is fairly straightforward. Adam made everything bad and Jesus makes everything great. You know, that's the thrust of it. And so this morning, what I want to impress upon you is if you have heartache and if you have sorrow and tribulation, if you struggle with guilt, if you need forgiveness, if you need life, and if you need restoration, and if you need reconciliation with the Father, Jesus gives you all of that, whereas Adam gave you none of that. And so turn to Christ. But then, the, then there's this issue with Paul as the inspired author, inspired by God, writing as his human agent, his word. And so the main thrust of what's being said here is not uh, all that technical or complicated, but then you have Paul as a scholar, and he does these, he goes off on these little side tangents, which, you know, trying to chase all these loose threads down, it can be very, uh, very difficult. And so we're going to spend two or three weeks looking at uh, the second half of chapter five and trying to address these various issues. And so I would just pray, I'd ask for you to pray for me as we wrestle through this text because uh, it requires a, a lot of study and a lot of prayer, and ultimately we should be praying for our church as a whole. You should, in your time at home this week, be praying for yourself that God would open your mind to understand what's being said, but it's also entirely necessary, and I call upon you as brothers and sisters to be praying for each other that God would open everyone's mind in our church to be understanding what it is that God is trying to say to us. And of course, pray for me, because uh, you know I have, I have the spade work in the garden here of God's word that I have to do day in and day out. So pray for me as well. I just wanna, we're gonna just be looking at verses 12 to 14 this morning. Uh, and so I'd invite you to turn, if you're not already there, Romans chapter five, I'm gonna read verses 12 to 14 as is our custom, and then we're going to pray and actually take time as a congregation, ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds to this, and then we, and then we will we'll get down to it. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, hyphen, you know, dash, which is not normal, but you find it here with Paul. This is where he darts away from his main point to say something tangential, which is necessary and important. But he says, just as death you know, came through, through Adam and so death spread to all men because all sinned, dash or hyphen, sin for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin isn't counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father in heaven, as we look at your word this morning, we know that it is your desire to open our minds, to illuminate our hearts, that we might be fed and nourished by what you are speaking to us this morning. This is a difficult text all the way through for a number of reasons. And I pray, God, that your spirit would just illuminate the passage for us, that you, Lord, would illustrate and shine upon the text, that we would see it and understand it, that you, Lord, would open the clouds of our mind to give us clarity and perception and discernment, that we could grasp the true depth of what's being said here through and through, that we would be reassured that we are your children in Christ and that we are held by you and empowered by your life. God, drive the truth of this word home into our hearts this morning and be with me, O Lord, I pray, and each of my brothers and sisters as we seek to see and understand and believe what you're saying to us this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. July 21st, 1861, the first major battle of the American Civil War, a little battle by the name of Bull Run. The roar of artillery awakened nearby sleeping town of Washington, D.C., the capital of the nation, though at that point it is divided by this civil war. And as the Confederate soldiers engaged in armed conflict with the Union soldiers, these sleepy pedestrians and neighbors woke up from their beds and they decided there's a great war on, there's a great battle unfolding not too far away. We should make our way there and see what is happening. And as these soldiers were bayoneting each other and pummeling each other with their fists, and as they were dragging each other down into the water here of this little stream known as Bull Run and trying to drown each other in the waters, and as they were engaged in this all-out conflict, this supreme contest of arms, all these Washingtonians made their way up onto this little hill beside that stream, dressed in leisure apparel, the ladies adorned in sundresses, carrying picnic lunches and picnic blankets, and they made for themselves there a little feast on the side of this hill overlooking this battle of Bull Run. They said, how splendid, how marvelous is this? And they raised toasts to President Lincoln, and they raised toasts to the Union, and they prayed for the death of all of those Confederate soldiers below. In fact, one observer noted that many of the ladies, the fine aristocracy of the American upper class, had brought along opera glasses 
through which they could hold these things up to their, their eyes and spy the battle below. One commenter said that you could hear all of them saying, isn't this just first rate? As men were being bludgeoned below. Suddenly, a rebel counterattack led by a hard-charging cavalry swept over the Union flank, and the Confederate captain, seeking some advantage by which he could rout the assault of the Union army, spied there a little hill, which would give him just enough advantage to shoot down upon his enemy, and he noticed there on that little hill, though he quickly ignored it, a bunch of so-called innocent bystanders watching him through these tiny little opera glasses. And up the cavalry charged, and in a flash, all of these so-called innocent bystanders began to flee for dear life as horses and soldiers tramped through the picnic ground, smashing wine glasses, smashing wine bottles, and indeed a number of civilians were shot by enemy fire that day. The moral of the story is this. You cannot sit on the sidelines of a war and think that you are not involved in it. There are two moral stories from that encounter that I want to impress home upon you today that I think Paul is pressing home on us in Romans chapter 5. War touches all. War attacks all. Everything becomes a battlefield in war. And though you might think you are nothing but an innocent bystander in this conflict, the reality is is that war rages in your own heart as well. That you think you can delight in the heartache and the suffering of those around you and not be affected by it. We look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, and this is exactly what he's driving at. If you'll recall, he has just said in verses 1 to 11 that because we've been saved by faith in Christ, we enjoy many, many benefits, and there are many assurances that we can have where we can know that we are saved. And then he transitions. If you look at verse 11, he says, more than that, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. His point in verse 11 is to say that because Jesus lives, there is now something in us that can cause us even greater rejoicing. As he's about to expound upon this and what it means for us living as Christians, he stops and he has to say something else, what we might call the doctrine of original sin. He's touching on it, and he's going to show us how it touches every single human being on the face of this earth. But he's doing all of that to show us that what Christ has done is much, much greater. We're going towards Christ and what he's done for us, but before we can get there, we have to unpack exactly what Paul is saying in these verses leading up to Jesus. And so he says in verse 12, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, remember he's contrasting this with life, sin and death versus life. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't counted where there is no no law. Now, the difficulty with this text, again, isn't with the main idea, but it's with the many, many details. Paul begins with a sentence 
that he never completes. At least he doesn't complete it right there in the first paragraph. He will come back to it later on in subsequent paragraphs. He begins this sentence, and his opening words are, therefore, just as sin entered into the world. But the corresponding words that we would expect don't come until much later. The symmetry that we're looking for, which is sort of required by the way Paul phrases this, if we were to see it there immediately, it would probably sound something like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so also through one man righteousness entered the world and life through righteousness, and so life came to all men because all shared in his righteousness. That's what you'd expect him to say. However, as he's getting ready to say that, or at least we think he's getting ready to say that, he stops and he starts to go on a tangent, which is very typical of Paul. He breaks off his argument in verses 13 and 14 in order to elaborate on what he has just said in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, death has spread to all men because all sinned, hyphen, or dash, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't counted where there is no law. Now, his point in this, he is arguing with Jews who base their righteousness and their ability to keep the law, and so that's a part of it. But he goes a little bit further, and he says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression or the original sin of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. What Paul has just said there is that death spreads to all men because all men sin. And he says, yes, indeed, death was in the world. And by extension, since death is the product of sin, we know sin was in the world, even though God had not given to Moses and through Moses to all the rest of humanity the Mosaic law. So we've already seen in our working through the book of Romans that there's a moral law that's written on our hearts. And what Paul is saying is that even though there has not been an explicit written commandment of Moses until many, 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 many centuries later, even though that hasn't happened, men were still sinning, but their sinning was not like the sin of Adam because Adam had been given a very explicit command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he then violated and he ate of it. Paul says he broke an explicit command, and then from the generations from Adam all the way to Moses, people were sinning even though the explicit commandment of the law was not given, which really reinforces the truth, which he's already touched on in previous chapters, that without an actual written word from God, humanity still knows through the moral law written on our hearts, that there is a right and that there is a wrong, and they choose the wrong. That's what he's just said there. So he's saying death reigned even though there was no explicit commandment until Moses. If we could review all of this briefly, there are three things that Paul is saying here. First, sin entered the world through one man. Adam is not named, though he is obviously the person that Paul is referring to. Paul isn't concerned with the origin of evil in general, but only with how it invades the world of mankind. It enters through one man. That is, it enters through his disobedience to God. 
Eve was also implicated, obviously, though Paul leaves her out of the picture here. It is apparent that God and Scripture are holding Adam primarily responsible. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is this. Death, then, enters through sin. As Adam was the door through which sin entered, so sin was the door through which death entered. You might picture it this way. Adam is over here. He sins. He opens the door to sin. Through steps the power of sin. Sin is here under God's judgment. And as a result of sin, sin then opens the door and through steps death. So that the presence of death is the means, the evidence by which you know the reality of sin. There's a third thing here. In this way, death comes to all men, Paul says, because all men sin. The apostle is still handling the relationship between sin and death, but now he moves on from their presence in this world and their presence specifically in Adam to their presence in all men. He's saying death and sin exist in all men. And he sees a similarity between these two situations. That is, there's a a Greek word there, hutos, and this can refer to the essential connection between sin and death. Paul might be saying, as death came to one man because he sinned, so death came to all men because they all sinned. Or it could refer to the the means by which both happened. In other words, Paul could be saying, as through one man sin and death entered the world, so through one man they spread throughout the world. Now, some of you, you're glazing over, and you're like, okay, I'm not sure what this has to do with anything, but this is really the crux of it. And to understand this is important to understanding how Jesus is so much better. If I could boil it down to you like this, the question is, when Adam sinned, Did he just unleash sin into the world? Or the other way Paul might be referring to this is what theologians have referred to as the doctrine of original sin. When Adam sinned, even though you and I were not born yet, were we participants with him in his sin? Being the descendants of Adam... Is there some way in which, even though we were not yet born, even though we are thousands upon thousands of years removed from the Garden of Eden, is there some way in which we willed and participated with Adam in that garden to rebel against God? This is a complicated question. Because you're sitting here this morning, you're probably thinking, that's ludicrous. I wasn't alive. I didn't exercise any kind of moral agency. I didn't participate with Adam in his sin. That's true from your perception, but is that what the Scriptures teach? This is what we need to really make sure that we understand. Either, there's two things that are being stated here, either all sinned simply by copying and imitating Adam Or all of us participated with Adam in that garden millennia ago, millennia ago. So, we need to take a close look at this. Doctrinal. First off, we have to ask the question, what exactly do we receive from Adam and how does it impact our lives? And we start off with this basic answer. We receive his nature. 
Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4 this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, makes the statement, describing all of lost and fallen humanity. He says in verse 1, Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. So you were dead. You've inherited death. You are spiritually dead. This is what you have. And he says you walked in these things. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, you notice all of us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. You're going to want to underline by nature. This is what we receive directly from Adam. We receive a nature that some some refer to it as a propensity for sin. This is a passion. The Greek word that's used here is passion. There's a passion in our flesh. There's something that is driving us. We have a desire. We want to sin. And that's the first thing we need to understand here. We receive that as a result of our nature from our great-grandfather, Adam. As all of us are descended from Adam, so all of us have received a nature from Adam, which Paul says is a nature that makes us responsible for the wrath of God. Look closely again at the tail end of verse 3. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. So whether you subscribe to the view that you participated morally with Adam in the garden, or whether you think that you just received from Adam a sin nature that drives you to sin, it does not in any way absolve you of responsibility before God. So however you view this doctrine of original sin, understand this, whether you think of yourself as having participated with Adam, or whether you think of yourself as merely being a sinner, having received the sin nature of Adam, regardless, God judges it. So there is a corporate dimension to this which we cannot escape. In some sense, in some way, we are united to a judgment of death as a result of what Adam has done. Say, wow, pastor, that doesn't sound very fair. Well, it gets worse. Look, look again at the text. He says we had an Adam, he said we have a, that we are children of wrath, by nature, children of wrath. All people receive this sinful nature, and it's a rebellious nature which produces personal, individual sin, personal, individual rebellion against God for which we are all responsible. You may not think of yourself as responsible for Adam's sin, but you have sinned. And the scriptures are quite clear on this. Paul has already alluded to it. Back in Romans chapter 3, quoting Psalm 14, he says, All have sinned, all have turned away, there is not one who does good, not even one. And that's exactly what he touches on here in Ephesians chapter 2. There is this corporate nature, this community aspect to it. If you look all the way back, it says in verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When we sinned against God, we didn't do it alone. We are individually responsible for it, but we participated with a large community, indeed the entire humanity that has ever existed. We went along the crowd. We did it together. We did it individually as a result of our nature, but we also did it corporately. Again, emphasizing this aspect that there's a corporate nature to it. And then he also says in verse 3, we did it 
according to the passions of our flesh. We did it because we wanted to. That's the most condemning statement he says here. We did it because we wanted to. Number of years ago, when I was still in university at Dallas Baptist University, I was talking to another young man who was uh, telling me that he wanted to go to the mission field, and we were having a, a great conversation about how we wanted to serve the Lord and how we wanted to live our lives. And this young man said to me, he said, you know, I don't want to get married. I said, oh, well, why is that? And he went on to elaborate, you know, similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that he wanted to be free from the distractions of marriage, the free from the distractions of children, so he could focus on serving God, and he wanted to be a missionary to some, you know, horrific third world country where uh, you would be persecuted by your faith, and you'd be in very dangerous situations, and you might even, if you were caught, you might even be killed, and he didn't want to have to worry about a wife and kids back home in the event that he lost his life. And there was a lot of nobility to that. And I, I told him that I understood that desire and that sense of calling. But then he went further and he said, also, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to pass on to them any kind of generational curse or any kind of indwelling sin in me. I don't want that to be passed on to them. And, and this is where things get really, really tricky for us because he's alluding to this idea of generational curses And at the same time, he's alluding to the fact that he wants to be focused on God and serving God. And we have this idea where we need to really sort this all out. Theologians who suggest that we are all inheriting original sin from Adam and that in some way we are all participating with Adam in that sin in the garden, many of those theologians will turn right around and they will say in the very next breath regarding this idea of generational sin or generational curse as a result of sin, that that's not true in the scriptures. And this is where if we're going to step back and we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're going to have to wrestle with this. How can we say in one sense that we all inherit something from Adam, but that we ourselves don't participate in this and we don't pass it down and and we don't get it from our parents that there's a difference between uh, what Adam does versus what you and I do, how can we say that and be consistent in the way we're approaching the Scriptures? And is it fair to say that there is such a thing as generational sins? In other words, as I alluded to in the announcements earlier, you're an alcoholic or an addict. Is it inevitable? Is it a foregone conclusion that as an addict, as an alcoholic, you're going to pass that on to your kids? We say no to this, but by the same token, we say yes to what Adam gives us. And this is very much present in our society today. Just a few years ago, we had the Black Lives Matter movement. And we had many, many protests happening primarily in the United States, but also here in Canada. And the assertion was being made that there is a thing such as systemic racism. That whether we acknowledged it or admitted it or not, we were all racists by virtue of the fact that we grew up in and lived in a culture that is predominantly white. Is there truth in these statements? How are we to unpack this? How are we to understand the original sin of Adam and then the consequent impact that it makes on you and me today? And how are we to understand how we might maybe inadvertently maybe unknowingly, pass that on to our kids after us. 
These are questions we need to wrestle with if we're going to understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. So I want you to flip there, but I want you to hear a couple of very important texts this morning. In Exodus chapter 20, let's get all of the information in front of us and then come to a conclusion. In Exodus chapter 20, in verses 5 to 6, God speaking to the nation of Israel says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. This is where this idea of a generational curse comes from. And he says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's an important distinction there. You need to bear that in mind, of those who hate me. He goes on to say, but I show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is reiterated again in Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, but forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And last but not least, we have a Leviticus 26 and verse 39. Because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall all rot away, God says. In those passages, it seems like God is affirming that we bear responsibility, in some measure, for the sins of our fathers before us. However, There are other texts that are absolutely crucial for sorting out what the Bible means in those first texts that are often ignored. Deuteronomy, again, chapter 24 and verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Hmm, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? And we have this recorded for us in 2 Kings where King Amaziah was dealing with a rebellion. And it says, because he, or says, but he, King Amaziah, did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Amaziah has to make a decision about what to do with these rebellious families. And he decides, you know what? The kids are going to go free. They're not to be responsible for what their parents did. And then last, but certainly not least, we have this extended passage from Ezekiel chapter 18. I'll just quote you one verse, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So there you have two clusters of texts. One seems to say, Kids are responsible for what their dads did. And another says, no, 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 actually kids are not responsible. So which is it? A couple of observations. First, the sins of the fathers are described in those passages as being punished in the children because the children have come to participate in the exact same sin as their father. That's important. That is really crucial. Going back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, it says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of all those who hate me. That's what he says. Of all those who hate him. 
In other words, it's the hatred of God that is in the embodiment of what the father's problem was. The father hated God, and now his son or his daughter growing up after him embodies that same spirit and also hates God. Those who experience the penalty for the father's sins are not completely, not even remotely innocent. They share with the father in what the father is doing. That's what those texts are saying. Now, the mystery here is we are not told how exactly the father's sins have become the children's sins. This is the mysterious thing about this text, but the reality is still clearly presented to us that when God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation, as it says, these kids join with their parents and celebrate rebellion against God just as their fathers before them did. That's crucial. We need to understand that. The father's sins are the children's sins. But you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so we're all individually responsible for our own sin, which means that whatever Adam did in the garden, he bears the penalty for that, and I don't bear the penalty for that. I bear the penalty for my own sin. Again, not quite so fast. We're getting there, I promise. Go to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, Jesus is in a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Luke 11, picking picking it up in verse 45, one of the lawyers says to Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. He's saying, hey, hey, you know how you're ripping on all the lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, that offends me. And, you, you, you know, in our day and age, you'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but that's not what Jesus does here. He says, woe to you also. <laughs> Jesus comes right back and says, oh, you're offended? Well, woe to you also. He says, for you load people with burdens hard to bear And you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build, notice this, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So he says, your fathers before you, they murdered innocent prophets who are just there trying to preach the word of God. And you are building their tombs. And so you and I are sitting here and we're thinking about that. We're like, "Mm mm-hmm. So they're building monuments and memorials to uh, innocent prophets who were slain by the generation that came before. What's so wrong with that? What's the problem with that? But notice what Jesus says here. He says, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed the prophets and you build the prophets' tombs. In the corresponding passage over in Matthew, Jesus says that one of the things that they tell themselves is they say to themselves, if we were alive in our father's generation, we would not have done what our fathers did. But he says, actually, you would. If you were alive in the generation of your fathers, you would have done exactly what they did. And that's what he says in the next paragraph there. He says, also the wisdom of God has said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all, notice that, all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. He says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and if you understand the Hebrew uh, ordering 
of the Old Testament. It's not like our English Old Testament. He's saying basically everything from the first book of the Old Testament to the last book of the Old Testament. Every crime, every sin, every ounce of blood that was ever shed in the Old Testament, he says, you're responsible for all of it. He says, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. This is a complex teaching. I could summarize it this way. What Jesus is saying is that Adam, when he sinned in the garden, was individually responsible and morally culpable for his sin. From that action, you and I all inherited an Adamic nature, a sin nature that drives us to sin. We are all driven and pressured into an action of death. But the scriptures also teach that each one of us, when we sin, we did it because we wanted to. They were our own passions. They were our own desires. And in case you were wondering, James makes it even more explicit. Don't flip there. Just listen. In James chapter 1, he says, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, every individual, every single one of you, you are tempted when you are lured and enticed by your own desire. Did you partake in the garden as though you were Adam? Did you partake of the forbidden fruit? No, you did not. But what Scripture is saying is if you had been there, you surely would have. And as we step back and particularly look at the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is saying, whenever you sin, you are affirming and ratifying the choice that Adam made as if it was your own decision. The best way that I can illustrate it is like this. We are all in a war. From the leading general to the lowliest just drafted yesterday private. From the man at the head of the army to the smallest, most insignificant individual at the rear of the army. All of us are engaged in a great armed conflict. It's to the death, and we want the enemy to be destroyed. And what God is saying is this. I'm the enemy that you're fighting against. I'm the one you desire my destruction. No, you're not as guilty for all of the decisions and all of the different uh, plans and scheming as necessarily the individual who is the general of the army. But when you as a private picked up a rifle and enlisted and volunteered as a corporate whole, all of you together, all of you that are waging war against the throne of heaven, it's as though you are all responsible for every single one of everyone else's individual decisions. You're doing it together. In other words, what God is saying is he accounts your individual responsibility on an individual basis but we would be deceived, we would be foolish to think 
that we are not a spiritual corporate whole with the world, and that we have not participated together, all of us, in waging war against God. And so God, when he looks at us, when we choose to persist in our rebellion, when we continue in our warfare, we are ratifying the decisions of Adam, and we are guilty for all of it, from Adam to the last man. This is where Jesus is described as being so much better. You say, well, I'm going to bear the sins for all of it. You're going to bear the penalty for all of it as though you had committed all of it. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. You're back in Romans chapter 5. Let me get there really quick. Paul says in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, underline that, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. The gift of salvation is not like the curse. It's more powerful. It's stronger. It goes further. If you're responsible for the sins of all of it in Christ, you're delivered from all of it and you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The count is completely cleared, and what you have in Christ is so much more than what you have, what you inherited from Adam. And particularly, I want to speak to fathers this morning. Thinking back on that conversation that I had so long ago, where this friend of mine in university said, I don't even want to have kids because uh, I don't want to pass on my generational curses to them. The scriptures teach that every person is cursed in Adam. And indeed, fathers, you play a crucial role in passing on certain habits and certain, um, you could say, sin patterns to your children. Your children don't necessarily have to choose to follow in your footsteps. But many times they will. And therefore, there is an extraordinary burden placed upon you as their father for the example that you will set, for the tone that exists in your home, whether or not you will lead your children to worship God or whether or not you will present to them an example that will drive them to anger and frustration. They will choose their own path. Make no mistake about it. But you do influence them. We inherited a world of death from Adam. We inherit the power of life from Christ. In the middle here stands you, Dad. You're not entirely responsible for what your kids choose, but you do play a role. When I had young kids, I remember coming home after work. At this time, we lived out in Raleigh, and I would have about a 10-minute drive from the downtown core out to work. And I remember driving home, and uh, it was very much so like I was back in World War II on Omaha Beach getting ready to go through that front door. I can remember walking up to that front door, and I, I put my hand on the doorknob, and I could hear through the door the sounds of wharf and gunfire and anarchy ensuing from inside. It may be not quite that extreme, but it sounded like that. You know, I could hear my youngest daughter screaming. I could hear my older daughter saying, Mommy, 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 how about this? Why not this? I could hear my wife trying to talk to a friend on the phone, and at the same time, she's trying to make dinner with, with craziness just ensuing all around her. And I would open the door, 
and I would walk through and my eyes would confirm what my ears had heard. The house is a shambles. A war zone has ensued. There are not dead bodies everywhere, but there are Legos, there are dolls, there are toys, and there's this sticky substance in my favorite reclining chair that I'm not sure what that is. There is my youngest daughter wearing half, I should say half wearing her diaper while she wanders to and fro. And there's my dear wife in the midst of all of this, on the phone with another lady in the church who's going through her own crisis. And she's there on the phone ministering to her, trying to be a friend while an absolute World War II Omaha Beach invasion is unfolding. Don't misunderstand me, church. I'm not putting any of this on my wife. And for young dads in this room, you understand. You've seen it. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. You walk through that door, and do you know what rises up in that moment? I'd like to say it's the Spirit of Christ. But that was not my experience. What rose up in that moment was the Adamic sin nature. Just as Adam said in the garden to God, this woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And in that moment, the Adamic sin nature in me says, man, alive, I've been at work all day. I'm tired. I'm worn out. And I just want to come home. And I just want to sit in my lazy boy recliner, not have some sort of sticky substance in it, and I just want peace and quiet, and I want the house to be picked up, and I want the kids to be perfectly well-behaved, and I feel like that's not asking too much given everything I've been through today. And all the fathers in the house could say, ouch. Either say, ouch, as Vody Bakum says, either say, ouch, or say, amen. Because you know I'm hitting you between the eyes right now. And for a while, this persisted, and there was conflict in my marriage, and there was conflict in my home. And God began to convict me. And he said, do you know the lie that you're telling yourself, Josh? I said, what's that, Lord? You're trying to address this situation in your own strength and in your own fallen nature. And you never once prayed or asked me to help you. And you never once leaned into my spirit to give you the strength. In my home as anarchy is unfolding. I could reign as God has called me to reign. I could rule as Christ comes to this earth to rule. I could put down the anarchy. I could, I could strive in such a way as to scoop up my kids and to love them and to call them to a quiet spirit, to address whatever concerns, whatever needs they are. And I could, as Christ in me, imitating Jesus, I could seek to reign in my home as Christ calls me to reign. I could seek peace in the midst of violence. I could seek order in the midst of chaos. I could seek love for my dear wife and love for my kids instead of this self-serving, self-absorbed hate. I could have done that, but it was just so easy because it was my nature to go with what Adam gave me, which is to blame shift, point the finger at my wife and say, look, I've been doing my job, earning my paycheck. Now it's time for you to get this whole act together. 
Now, how long until my kids begin to pick up on that? You see, they may not pick up on it right away when they're, you know, two years old and three years old, but church, what do you think that's really going to do to your kids when they become 14 or 15? They begin to clue into the fact that dad does not take responsibility, dad does not sacrifice, dad does not love, dad just wants to be left alone. It doesn't take much to guess what that does to your kids as teenagers. Like father, like son. Are you responsible for all of the decisions that your kids make? No. But do you bear an inordinate amount of influence on their lives? Yes. And there is something spiritual to it which none of us can deny. God in his grace convicted me that what I needed to do is I needed to pray. And this is my advice for all of you this morning. Moms and dad. Dads in particular because that's my experience. I can remember driving home going that 10-minute distance out to Rayleigh. And I've been dealing with ministry all day, dealing with people and sin issues and having different struggles and different conflicts in the church. And I can remember driving home and the temptation is there. Oh no, like what's gonna meet me when I go through that front door? But instead, I took that moment, I shut off the radio, I stopped listening to the news broadcast, I stopped listening to that podcast, and I said, I'm just gonna take these next 10 minutes, I'm gonna pray before I get home. And my prayer was this, God, ready my mind to be your servant strengthen my weak hands to go through that door and to love my wife the way she deserves and help my kids not to be screaming bloody murder. (laughs) Whatever their issues are, if I can just get through the fog of initial contact with the enemy, I can sort it out and I can do what needs doing so that they will be happy and joyful. And nine times out of ten, I got everything I asked for. You say, what about that one time out of ten that you didn't? That one time out of ten, God said, I'm growing you in patience. That's the truth of it. I can remember praying that prayer and coming home. And yes, there were Legos and dolls and toys everywhere. There was a sticky substance on the dining room table. My wife is on the phone with a friend. She's juggling my youngest daughter in one hand. And I would, rather than thinking to myself, I just want peace and quiet, I would throw myself into the conflict and I would say, I'm a servant of Christ. I take my daughter from my wife. I grab a sponge from the sink. And I would start making cooing sounds so that she'd stop screaming. And I'd start to wipe the table. When I retreated like Adam, war persisted. There was no peace. But when I followed the example of Christ, and I began to address the problems and began to love the people in my home, within about five minutes of daddy getting home, there was calm. There was blessing. There was joy. The good news in all of this, we can't actually change the corruption of the world around us. It is corrupt. But we can take the responsibilities that we've been given by the Lord and we can faithfully do what he has called us to do as the world around us continues to descend into anarchy. 
You say, I'm not sure what I've got left for my kids. I'm going to be growing these kids in my home. I'm going to be sending them out into a world that's largely broken, and I don't see any chance, any possibility for success here. I don't see it either, but do you know who does? Jesus does. A number of years ago, I was reading, this is back in 2019 on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and I was reading the account of John Trippin, who stormed Omaha Beach. He was a private first class, and he described the horror and the carnage and the chaos. He described the violence. He described the pain and the anarchy of it all, and just not even knowing where the bullets were coming from. And he wondered at the end of 75 years, he looked back and he wondered at the end of it all, he said, how in the world did I survive that day? He didn't know. He didn't know. But in this recounting of history, as he's sitting there on Omaha Beach, he commented on the cemetery, and he commented on the tombstones, and he spoke to that audience there uh, several years ago, and he said, as a, as a very old 94-year-old man, he said, do you hear screaming? The audience said no. He said, do you see blood washing on the beaches? The audience said no. And he said, does it look ugly? And in asking that question, they looked around, and they looked at the cemetery, and they looked at the beautiful trees. And in the midst of all that horror, 75 years ago, Christ had come, and he had restored peace and beauty to a broken world, such that here we are, gathered 75 years later, and it is a quiet, peaceful, tranquil place. Adam cursed us all. We cursed ourselves. But don't lose hope. Jesus restores beauty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning, God, that you would just continue to do your work in this world. Lord, I ask particularly for the fathers that do have an outsized role, an outsized role, a huge influence that you have given them to influence their kids. I pray, God, that they would exercise that responsibility to the glory of who you are. God, we seek to raise our families, to raise our children, to raise this church to know you, to love you, and to walk in wisdom with you. And even in so doing, we give our very best to proclaiming your good news to a watching world. But by the same token, we know that only you, only you, can save it. We do not lose hope because we know you are coming to achieve that very thing. And along with the Apostle John, we pray, just as he wrote at the tail end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.